Matthew 26, verses 36 through 46. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, my father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Well, again, uh, good morning. We have been in the Gospel of Matthew for most of our life as a church, as many of you know, and for these three Sundays, starting this Sunday, and for the next two, we're in chapter 26, and today we're in the Garden of Gethsemane, where we get to see Jesus in his moment of intense emotional pain, deep emotional pain. So in light of that, here's the roadmap for today's teaching. In light of Gethsemane, uh, number one, do you have this first slide? We're gonna do, first part, of the, first part of the teaching, we're gonna do a recap of our emotionally healthy church material. So if you were here last fall, we went eight weeks through basically the book we have on the back table, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, and we're gonna sum that up all in one Sunday right now. We leaned on the work of Pete Scazzaro, as well as several, te- several uh, texts of the New Testament, and we look deeply at what it means to be discipled emotionally. Um, and we're still seeing fruit from that series, like tremendously. Um, there's, there's several communities that say that was the moment they finally felt connected to one another. Tons of healing stuff happened even in our own Tuesday night community. So we usually start by walking through the text at the front of the sermon, But today we're gonna end by walking through the text and you're gonna see why, hopefully by the end. So the first chunk of this teaching is a recap of what it means to be emotionally healthy as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Why are we doing that? Because Jesus' Gethsemane moment is kind of ground zero for what emotional health looks like in the family of God. What it looks like to bring God into what's going on inside of us. And so then part two of the teaching, we walk through the text, and then part three, we come to the table. Does that sound good? Okay, so here we go, part one. It's the lion's share of this sermon is part one. So in the Gospels, Jesus is presented as a person with the full spectrum of human emotion. He's compassionate, he's angry, he's consumed with zeal, he's greatly distressed, depressed. A few texts actually say, and Jesus sighed. 
I love picturing Jesus just, oh. And Jesus sobbed and he groaned. He surprised and amazed, exceedingly rejoiced, greatly desires and loves. And the most important thing about this for followers of Jesus is we get to see what he does with those feelings. We get to see what he does. Why is this important? Because being a follower of Jesus is really about being reparented into the new family of God. That word reparented, I love that word. Because following Jesus isn't just a private individual faith. The primary language, if you read the New Testament, for what it means to be in the church, the primary language is family language. Mothers, fathers, siblings. God the Father is creating this new family around his son Jesus to live differently than they used to. Together by the Holy Spirit's power in God's new household. That's the, that's the, the impetus of the New Testament. And so the New Testament authors are like, okay, you lived that way, but no longer. Now we live this way in God's renewed human family. Not the old, but the new, like Jesus lived. So following Jesus, once you're born again, there's more family language, right? Born again. That's a metaphor for what it means to be saved and regenerated and given a new heart through faith in Jesus. So once you're born again by water and spirit, you grow up and are reparented out of the flaws we all picked up from our families of origin and we lean into the new thing God is forming us into. So all of following Jesus is this, being reparented in the new family of God. Okay, got it. So some of you might be thinking, like, get it, following Jesus, reparented, not the old but the new, like Jesus, I get it, but what does that have to do with my emotions? Isn't following Jesus about like faith, not feelings? Like how you behave, not how you feel? What's this about being discipled emotionally? Great question, okay, that's a great question. And so here's a couple questions I'm gonna put on the screen just to get us thinking in the right direction. Just to get us thinking. Reflection time. How did your family of origin resolve conflict? Are you now able to do confrontation in a way that's clear and direct and respectful? Or do you find yourself veering off into like painful put-downs or avoidance or like gossip? You triangulate. You don't actually go direct. There's nothing direct about it. You go around. Or maybe just silent escalating tension at the Thanksgiving table that no one ever actually talks about. How did your family of origin resolve conflict? Or maybe how did your family of origin process anger? Was it two extremes, either suppress or explode with no middle ground? Or maybe it was this weird underground middle ground of like sarcastic, passive, aggressive comments. And now getting closer to our Gethsemane text, here's another question. How did your family process grieving and loss? Do you find now that you're able to openly admit your losses? And disappointments? Well, like when you go through disappointment, do you take time to ask yourself reflective questions, like intentionally reflect on your feelings? Why do I feel this way? What's really going on? Or do you just pretend nothing's wrong and, and medicate even by something as innocuous as entertainment? 
Here's one way to tell if you're emotionally healthy. Usually what comes with emotional health when it comes to grief and loss is whether grieving, other grieving people gravitate to you because they see you as so in touch with your sorrow. Are you like a magnet for grieving people? That's actually a sign of, of emotional health often. Are you able to cry and experience depression and sadness and explore the reasons behind it and then ask and allow God to work in you through it? So this is all. If following Jesus is being reparented into the family of God, then the question for followers of Jesus today, how do we do emotions? in the family of Jesus, this new family. Because we, we can't just say, oh, that's just how my dad did it, that's just how my mom did emotions, it's the way I grew up, we didn't talk about our feelings, so I just kind of stuff it now. Like, okay, cool, that's fine, that's great, but that's not how we do emotions in the family of Jesus. So, just a couple of charts to help us kind of move along here. God, why is this? God made us whole people. You are a whole person. I like pie charts, they're fun. God made us whole people. This chart is from, again, the Schizero book that we highly recommend, couldn't recommend more highly. If you're wondering what to do between now and September for August with your community, go through that book. Um, so we are, we are social, intellectual, spiritual, physical, emotional, we're all that. And they all kind of overflow into one another. We're beautiful creatures, you guys. We're definitely more than just this chart, but we're not less. And I don't know about all of you, but I came to faith in Jesus when I was a little boy, and I had great like youth pastors and church leaders and spiritual like voices in my life. When I started following Jesus, there was a social plan for my discipleship. Like get in fellowship. Your community group, join a Park Hill community. We have a plan for you. Like, it was great. It was actually super needed. Accountability, vulnerability, be open and raw and all of that. One another's, love one another. All the commands in the New Testament, most of them are one another's and all of that. We, I heard that growing up, and that's absolutely great. Also, when I started following Jesus, there was an intellectual plan for my discipleship. Like theology, study the Bible, know your doctrine, Nowhere church history got it wrong and corrected so that you don't make the same mistakes. Apologetics, like defend your faith. Christianity is an intellectual religion and it can stand up in the most rigorous academy. So learn it, know it. Like I was taught all of that. It's great, super important stuff. And I was also given a spiritual plan for my discipleship when I started following Jesus. Like pray every single day and you'll grow or whatever. Read your Bible and pray, do it. It's true, it's actually true. There is an element of growth that comes from practicing spiritual disciplines like Lectio Divina, meditating and chewing slowly in the stillness on the words written from God. And devotionals like read, wake up early and read, do this thing, this is vital, that's great. And when I started following Jesus, there was even a physical plan for my discipleship, like bodily holiness. What I put in my body matters to God. Like there was a plan to, to fight the adverse effects of drugs and alcohol abuse and sexual immorality outside of marriage and, uh, and modesty, like what I do with my body even matters to God. And, and physical, physical care, like I was put in a Christian dance fitness class. Just kidding, I'm just kidding, it's a joke. <laughs> 
It's a joke. Actually, it might not be a joke, but it is a joke. Not really, but seriously. And that's physical care. And that physical care one was always, it always kind of linked up with the body as the temple of the Holy Spirit verse, which is true and important. God dwells in and with you bodily. It's beautiful. And that's important. But when I started following Jesus, there was really no emotional plan over my life. It was like, definitely don't listen to, definitely don't listen to my chemical romance. Too emo. Leads you away from the faith. No dashboard confessional. No, no. E- but like, I was told, I was told, like, I don't know if you were taught stuff like this, but I was taught things like believe fact over feeling. Like you have to be able to shut up your feelings. You have to believe the truth, no matter what you feel. And if you feel too much, you risk becoming a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways, right? Like James 1 says it, right? And I was taught things like Jeremiah 17, 9, like ripped out of context by itself. The heart is deceitful above all things beyond cure. Who can know it? And so instead of discipling me through my feelings, I was simply told, your heart's just wicked, so don't go with your heart. Don't follow your feelings. And definitely don't listen to too much Coldplay or whatever. Too emo. It gets you too emo. But in all seriousness, in all seriousness, I was basically taught, directly or indirectly, that emotions aren't an important part of the faith. Because emotions aren't fact. Emotions are feeling. So don't base your faith on feelings, because feelings can change. And listen, I actually agree with that, some of that. For sure. There's some of that that is absolutely true. But the reality is, I'm a super emo guy. <laughs> like, I am an emotional human. Just ask the staff or my wife, and they will tell you. And it's beautiful. The reason I'm emotional is because I'm made in the image of God. God has emotions as evidenced by Jesus. And that doesn't mean all my emotions are right, but they are true. They're true about me. So here's the question then, what do I do with them? How do I feel well? How do I feel faithfully to God? For most of my life, I was never really taught how to bring my emotions under God in a mature way to say, God, here's how I'm feeling right now. I want to mature in this moment, and I want you to shape my emotional life just like you shape me spiritually, intellectually, physically. I want you to shape my emotions, God. I just was never taught how to do that. And here's what happens when followers of Jesus aren't discipled emotionally. When we're not discipled emotionally, we tend to think either, it's either two extremes, either on one extreme, emotions don't matter. This is the fact over feeling thing. It's like shut off, put aside your feelings, and fill the space with facts. I feel like this, but no, here's the truth. Get rid of all the bad feelings, just believe this, because I want joy, I want joy to come. Come, joy. And, and in, this, in this mindset, in, in that mindset, we can get afraid to feel so much so that we never actually open our true selves to God or the people God brings into our life. And, and that's a lonely existence. God created humans for relationship with himself, God, and with others. But when you say, oh, emotions 
aren't that important. I'm just not really an emotional person. I tend to just stuff it. When you say that, you actually cut yourself off. You cut your true self off from experiencing the kinds of relationships God made you for. Authentic depth with God and others. So when we're not discipled emotionally, we either go to that extreme where emotions don't matter, or we go to the other extreme, emotions matter more than anything. Like I have to feel all the feels that are good. No bad things. If, if I don't feel the good things, nothing in the world is good. I didn't feel God today. I didn't feel it in worship. I didn't feel it, and it's all about feel. I think I just feel like. I think John Mayer has a song, I think I just feel like. That's the title of it. Making fun of this aspect of our generation. We want to cover over the bad feelings with the good. So we try. We try in unhealthy ways when we're not discipled in our emotions. We don't learn how to get joy in a healthy way, and instead we make these unhealthy patterns happen in our lives. We find joy by drinking or through serial dating. Like I can't be alone with my heart, so I have to always be on the hunt or be hunted and know that I'm just part of this thing that is going on in the world called the dating scene. I can't not. Or entertainment binging. Maybe, again, it's something as simple as burying yourself alive in entertainment. When we're not discipled emotionally, it leads to trouble. Pete Scazzaro, the author of the book, I keep, I keep citing, he writes this, it is not possible for a Christian to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. And then in his book, after that quote, he lists some examples, and it's actually really hard to read, but we're gonna go there, so I'm gonna read them. Here's, an exa- here's just examples of outward seeming spirituality with emotional health actually underneath. You can be a dynamic, gifted speaker for God in public and be an unloving spouse and parent at home. It's emotional unhealth. You can function as a community group leader or prayer leader and be unteachable, insecure, and defensive. You can memorize entire books of the New Testament and still be unaware of your depression and anger, even displacing it on other people. Be honest, that's me. Like now, that's me. I got problems. You can, pr- you can fast and pray a half day a week for years as a spiritual discipline and constantly be critical of others, justifying it as discernment. Let that pass. You can lead dozens of people in a Christian ministry while driven by a deep personal need to compensate for a nagging sense of failure. You can pray for deliverance from the demonic realm when in reality you are simply avoiding conflict, repeating an unhealthy pattern of behavior traced back to the home you grew up in. And finally, you can be outwardly cooperative at church, but unconsciously try to undercut or defeat your supervisor by coming habitually late 
constantly forgetting meetings, withdrawing, and becoming apathetic, or ignoring the real issue behind why you are hurt and angry. Okay. Hopefully the point is clear. You can look super spiritual outside, but underneath the tip of that iceberg is an underbelly of emotional unhealth. And a huge reason for this, if we're honest, you guys, is we're so afraid to feel deeply. We can be, often, for several reasons. We might be afraid of our emotions because maybe somewhere down the line, somebody downloaded their emotions on you and it scarred you. Maybe they unloaded on you. And you're like, I will never be caught dead doing that to someone else or being in a place where I receive that kind of suffering. Or maybe flip, maybe flip it. Maybe you unloaded on someone at some point. Your emotions were just unloaded on them in a way that damaged them and you saw the destruction it caused and you've promised never to open up. You spoke a curse over yourself, like I will never. So whatever the reason, many of us, so many, are afraid to feel what's going on inside of us, let alone bring our authentic emotions to God and our community to enjoy forgiveness and healing that comes with the family of God. The authors of the book, The Cry of the Soul, they explain our problem and the solution in this way, super helpful, super helpful. They say, ignoring our emotions is turning our back on reality. Listening to our emotions ushers us into reality. Notice they never said all emotions are right. It's not what they're saying. They're saying all emotions are real. Not necessarily right, often wrong, but real. And reality is where we meet God. Emotions are the language of the soul. They're the cry that gives the heart a voice. However, we often turn a deaf ear through emotional denial, distortion, or disengagement. We strain out anything disturbing in order to gain tenuous control of our inner world. We are frightened and ashamed of what leaks into our consciousness. In neglecting our intense emotions, we are false to ourselves and lose a wonderful opportunity to know God. We forget that change comes through brutal honesty and vulnerability before God. But when we're not discipled emotionally, we tend to think the spiritual thing to do is to deny, disengage, skip over depression. I remember a long time ago hearing one leader say to another, I don't get depressed, I just turn the light of God's word on. That would be so nice. <laughs> we just skip over depression. We run from loneliness. We silence doubts. But listen, there is nothing spiritual about denial. When we don't let Jesus shape how we handle our emotions, we risk living a life that's false to ourselves and false to everyone around us, and worst of all, false to God. We miss out on an opportunity to know God to know him in our experience of emotion. And so I'd be probably borderline hypocritical 
if I didn't actually get personal in a sermon like this. So here's a personal story from my own life. Uh, we, we often say, hey, Park Hill Church was started a year and a half ago. Yay. We often do that, right? Um, which is really great to celebrate all that God has done. He's done so much. Christmas Eve, 2017, it was a Sunday, 10 a.m. gathering, North Park Observatory. It was actually really fun and so exciting. Um, different people speaking into it and people celebrating this new thing God is doing in our midst. How many of you were there, actually? Anybody? That's okay. A lot of turnover. It's all right. That's good. Just kidding. No, um, but yeah, so, so um, it was a great landmark of a day, like, so beautiful. What we don't often talk about is what happened that afternoon. Um, so about noon or one, the team came over after the, after the event. The team came over to our house to celebrate food and drink and fellowship and just prayer and thanking God for launching a church in the city using us of all people. And, and, as, and as the lunch started to kind of carry on, I started to feel very strange. And it happened so fast. As people started to leave, everything started slowing down. Like everything, I was like walking in a half speed podcast or something. And as the last person left, it was all I could do to grab a couple blankets to wrap myself in so I wouldn't faint or puke because I was sweating and I couldn't stand. Temperature spiked a bit. And later on, I had never been to therapy before then. Before then, Later on, after I went to therapy, the guy confirmed that I had experienced what, what is known as a psychogenic fever, a stress-related psychosomatic condition that manifests itself in high body temperature. It's caused by exposure to emotional events or to chronic stress. And I would never have thought I was a stressed person. I never, not even on my map. I'm the Lego guy. I'm Chris Pratt. Everything is awesome. Everything is cool. Even you're part of a team. Everything is cool when you're living a dream. Like, like that theme song is my personal national anthem. <laughs> and everyone around me can get to, you can be part of the team. It's great. It's awesome. And, and part of the problem is when you're just the Lego guy all the time and unclear about your expectations for people that report to you, ambiguity starts to breed lack of clarity, which is unkind, even if you're the nicest guy in the world. And so questions, concerns coming up the pipeline. I'm like, everybody's cool, right? Everybody's cool, right? Like... <laughs> And then, and then me learning how to mature emotionally, it just came out as a warning light on the dashboard on Christmas Eve, 2017, the day that Park Hill launched. Um, that was a, that, like I said, that was a warning that began an 18 month to date journey of self-discovery that I'm still very much on in which I have needed people. I have needed people therapist, spiritual director, other mentors in my life, other church planners who have been down 18 months and then two year and then three year and now 10 years. I've needed them to speak directly into my life. I've needed my wife more than I've ever needed my wife. And I, I don't, you know, I don't have like uh, chronic panic attacks. I'm not that guy. I know I've spoken to many of you in this church who suffer through that and I grieve with you. That's not me. Um, but I've had to seek help from the Spirit of God through daily practices of Sabbath and meditation and accountability through therapy 
to uh, correct the unhealthy, damaging ways I deal with my emotions through avoidance. Through tuning out, when I don't even think I'm tuning out. My wife's like, you're tuning out. I'm like, no, I'm not. Stop telling me that. And it just goes south because of my immaturity. And it was two, two years, 18 months ago, it was ruining our marriage in the middle of thrive, thriving ministry. And I still need to be emotionally discipled by Jesus. A big, a big part of that growth was six months ago. Um, my spiritual director did a 360 assessment with me and the team, anonymously got feedback, positive and negative, from all the members of the team here at Park Hill on where I've shined and where I've opposite of shined and what I should do about it. So raw, hamburger meat for a soul type of situation. But, so, but the beginning of the most beautiful, healthy, not everything is awesome Lego guy kind of leadership. And relationships that are like, we've been through it, haven't we, as a team? And we're in this for the long haul, aren't we, as a team? I think we can begin to understand what emotional health looks like when we look at someone who lived into that kind of humanity more fully and authentically than any of us. And he gave his raw emotions to God and to his community. His name is Jesus, and he's in a garden called Gethsemane. So we're gonna look at our text now, moving into the final part. And we're gonna see three things, three things from Jesus. He gives God his true feelings. He gives God his true desires. And ultimately, he gives God his trust. So first, Jesus gives God his feelings. We can learn from this. Verse 36, then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with them, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. See that? And he said to them, he verbalized, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. It's heavy. This garden is called Gethsemane, and Gethsemane comes from the Hebrew construct word that means olive oil press. It's the place where uh, Jews would crush olives down to a pulp and milk out all the olive oil that they could, and there's so much significance there because olive oil was used for food, for light, for medicine, healing, anointing kings and priests, pouring oil on a, on a priest's beard to like sanctify him as a servant of Israel, pouring oil over a king's head to say, you're the guy God has chosen. Oil is like from menial to royal tasks, and it's central to the life of Israel, and now Jesus is becoming our crushed olive. He's becoming the source of our food and healing and our light and our king anointed and our priest standing before us and standing before God for us. It's amazing what's happening here. And you know what's doing it is the crushing weight of suffering. It's, it's crushing Jesus now. The pain of imminent crucifixion, not only that, but the idea of being abandoned by his father and by his friends, it's wrecking him emotionally at this moment. 
It says he began to be sorrowful and troubled, and he's still faithful, okay? Jesus gives God his feelings. How? He openly, verbally clar clarifies. He says to his disciples, my soul right now is overwhelmed to the point of death. Can you be with me? Does Jesus use hyperbole like this? Does he exaggerate about his feelings? <laughs> no, exaggerating is lying. So Jesus doesn't exaggerate. He's actually near death with emotion at this moment. And he gives his emotions to God and he's honest about them to his friends. He brings his community into his feelings. Please stay here. Can you be with me? This is what it looks like on this first point. How do you give God your feelings? How do you do it? Pray authentically. God, man, rough day. I feel blank right now. I'm in prayer and I'm saying this. I'm, I feel blank right now. Come Holy Spirit, help. I bring you into what I'm honestly feeling. And the flip side of that coin, bring your community into it, your spiritual community. Like, hey guys, can you pr pray with me, be with me? I feel blank right now. I am bitter right now. I feel bitterness right now. Be with me in this. I feel, I'm so sad right now. It works with positive emotions too. I feel, I am, oh, I am so anticipating God to do something great. I bring you into this. Can you guys be with me in this? Pray authentically and bring your community into that authentic expression of feelings. So giving God your feelings, that's what that means. Praying authentically and bring your community, that's what Jesus does first. And then secondly, he doesn't just stop there. He also gives God his desires. Not just what he feels, but he gives God what he actually wants. Look at verse 39. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but you will. So Jesus calls God father, and then he respectfully gives God his desire. If there's any way, if there's any way, I know that I'm probably supposed to go to the cross, but here's the truth. I don't wanna. I'm just being real with you, God. I don't want that. I have read Isaiah 53 and the suffering servant. It pleased the Lord to bruise him and on him all, all our iniquity was laid and by his stripes and all that's, and I, I kind of for sure know that's me, but right now, is there a way that it couldn't be? Think about that, the implications of what's actually happening right now. This is a prayer of desperation. I don't know if you've ever prayed this prayer before. Like, God, you parted the Red Sea, you can do anything, do this. If you're praying that prayer, that means you're desperate. Jesus is desperate here. And Jesus doesn't want to suffer the cross. This is such a human moment. Picture like a clock. If the Father's will is right on the money, 12, 12 o'clock, Jesus is like wavering at nine o'clock. He's never at six o'clock. He's never opposed. That's important. But right here, he's like waffling between nine and 10. Is it possible that you can change the narrative 
Father. May there be another way. He's being real about his desires. Question, what would that look like for you? To give God your desires, right or wrong, to give them to God. Father, they really hurt my ego and I really just, all I can think about is defending myself. I want to defend myself so bad. I want to hold back good from the person that hurt me just now. I want that so bad. Father, I really want more influence. I want my name to mean something. I know that's not all bad. It's not bad to have influence and to want more. But right now I just have this sense that my, mixed, my motives are mixed and I just, whatever, this is what they are. I give them to you. It's not denial. Do not deny your, your feet. It's not, Lord, I don't want riches. I only want what you want, only. And since it's not right to be greedy, I don't want any worldly thing. Like, that's just not authentic. It's, Lord, I gotta be honest. I want more recognition. I know my motives are mixed. Or, Father, it, maybe it's lust. I really wanna objectify that body right now. I want that. Come into that desire, God. I bring it to you. I really want it right now. What if that lust is an emotion that God wants to meet you in? What if that gut level angst is where God wants to reveal himself to you as the creator of passion and the fulfillment of the deepest human longing as his loved son or daughter? This is what Jesus is doing here. This is where he wants to take us. Open, raw exposure of our feelings and desires, not just how we feel, but what we really want. He wants to open those wants to himself. He wants to see them. He wants us to bring them to him. In the garden, Jesus isn't afraid to feel. And as his feelings are coming out, he's not afraid that it'll like somehow like, <laughs> It'll somehow expose him as not wanting God's will. He's not afraid of being exposed as someone, who's a, as someone who's questioning God's will. Not at all. He's not afraid of that at all. He's struggling with the will of God for his life. This is Jesus, the perfect human, God with us, struggling with God's will, unafraid of what that looks like, bringing his community into it fully. Jesus is desperate here. What would it look like to invite God into your shame? or your anger, or your doubt, or your lust, even if the desires are wrong desires, what would it look like to bring God into them? What if we were free to do this before God in our community? Imagine the implications for our sense of entitlement or our cycle of lust, or our given to anger. Imagine the implications for those emotions and those desires when you bring God into them. Jesus gives God his true raw feelings and desires, but here's the point, this is the final thing. It all comes unraveled without this. 
the only way any of this works is if we get this last part. <laughs> Most essential piece, Jesus gives God his trust. He went away, verse 42, a second time and prayed, Father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. He doesn't just lay out his authentic feelings or whatever. And he doesn't just verbalize his raw desires. He surrenders them. He gives God his trust. And I think that's a word for many of us today. Simply this. Listen, family. You can trust God with your emotions, even your wrong emotions. Surrender is the only place where your emotions can become healthy. Father, here's what I'm feeling, here's what I really want, and here's where I trust you. Can we do this together? It's not easy, which is why Jesus sends us his Holy Spirit. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is available to you to be faithful like Jesus was. Can we do this together? By the power of the Holy Spirit, we can. We just need to agree. In our communities this week, over coffee, over food and drink, as the, as the family of Jesus, can we go there? Maybe personally, on your commute. I don't know how far you commute. On your commute, in the gym, in your quiet time, can we go here individually with God as well? Jesus went there for us. We're gonna come to the table now where Jesus went there for us all the way into the depth of human emotion and the sense of abandonment and forsakenness. Jesus went there for us. He went there as our obedient king and our obedient priest who represents us to the Father. <laughs> so we're made faithful, we're seen as loved. And now he gives us his spirit so we can follow him there. He gives us everything we need to follow him there, the power we need. Can we be this kind of community? Let's do this together. So we're gonna take 30 seconds right now and just invite God in with a little 30 second practice. Just take a deep breath. Feel free to close your eyes and acknowledge the presence of God, he's here. The same eyes that wept tears in the garden, those eyes are here, they're open, they see you. What does it mean for you to give God your feelings? God wants you to feel right now, and that's not the end. He doesn't just want you to sit there, but he wants you to feel them and be real about them. Imagine, imagine God asking you, how do you feel and respond? And now give God your desire. Good or bad. By giving it to him, you're bringing him in. And give God your trust. This is what I feel, this is what I want, but may your will be done.
And in that spirit of trust, the family of God gets to come to the table of Jesus, where he trusted the Father all the way to his death. And as we eat and drink the bread and cup, we're eating and drinking the faithful death of Jesus that he did not deserve, that we did. Where he says, I see you, I actually feel you. (laughs) He felt the full weight of our sin, he literally felt us. And he says, I love you. And I welcome you to my table.